Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. And this week, we have our latest Bill of the Month feature. We're taping in our regular Thursday morning time slot this week on April 12th. As they say in the business, news happens fast here in Washington, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Stephanie Armour, The Wall Street Journal. Hi, good morning. Sarah Cliff of Vox.com. Good morning, Julie. And Paige Winfield-Cunningham of The Washington Post. Hello. So this is Nerd Week here on the podcast. There is lots of health news, but it's pretty weedy. So I hope you will bear with us while we explain why this stuff is important. We're going to start this week with something that's unfortunately called the HHS, quote, Notice of Benefit and Payment Parameters for 2019. It's better known as the rule that will govern the Affordable Care Act market for next year, and apparently part of this year, too. Too, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, I think everybody around this table wrote about the rule. Uh, so let's go around and have everybody pick out what they think are some of the biggest changes to the market that this rule would take. Paige, why don't you start? You know, I guess sort of broadly first, if you were taking seriously the administration's promises to turn a lot of stuff over to the states, they really <laughs> followed through with this rule. I, I think from like top to bottom, this rule was really about giving the states more ability to structure benefits, to exempt insurers from some of the ACA requirements. Um, And I think will really lead to much more of a patchwork of coverage because I think you're going to see blue states and red states respond very, very differently to this. Um, Let's see, the biggest things, gosh. Um, I mean, I guess the thing we have to talk about first is the change to the essential health benefits. Um, That that seems to be be the biggest thing. So basically under this change, um, states could allow insurers to look elsewhere, look outside their borders for the type of benchmark plans that they would pattern benefits after. Um, so basically, this could give insurers a lot more leeway to 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 boost benefits in certain categories, but also to diminish benefits in other categories. So for instance, um, you know, t- Texas could, Texas plans could take their benchmark for maternity care from another state if they didn't want to cover as many services. They could look at another state for hospital services. Um, and so they could really kind of piece together um, a, just a really different set of benefits potentially. And, and the idea in the original ACA was that each state would take a plan that was popular in that state so that the the ACA coverage would look like coverage that other people had in right. the state. Right. Well, correct. So like there, I think there were like seven plans within the state that basically the state could choose as the benchmark plan that then the marketplace insurers would have to pattern their coverage after. So basically this could play out in two ways for insurers. They could either choose uh, the like the entirety of a benchmark plan from another state or they could pull dip from for, for the diff, 10 different categories from all sorts of different states. So I would say that's probably like the biggest thing. Um, but there was like a ton of other stuff well, that... Let's keep going. And yeah, then we'll yeah, come yeah. back listen. to what we missed. Stephanie, <laughs> yeah. what, what was your biggest sort of takeaway? One one thing I noted as well with the benchmark plans is it looked like there may also be an option where they could put together their own 
um, plan that wasn't necessarily set on benchmarks, but that was not entirely clear. It said it would have to go through some sort of an approval process. So I have a bit of a question mark on that aspect. But obviously, it does give a lot more to the states in terms of um, the rate review process for um, premium hikes. Um, it Also, in terms of the amount that insurers have to put toward um, actual clinical services versus profit. But another really interesting part of this, and this was separate, this was a guidance, um, extends the exemptions from the individual mandate, which actually are still in effect. Many people don't realize that and through 2019. Um, well, through, right, through this yeah, year. It yes, ends in 2019. Yes, yes exactly. It ends in 2019. So, so, so there's, this, in theory, there's a mandate penalty if you don't right. have coverage this year. Right. And they were also saying it could go back, I think, retroactively through 2017. So it will vastly expand the number of people who will be able to get exemptions based on um, sort of the prevalence of insurers that they can pick from. If they don't have ones that they can pick from or only one they can pick from, they can claim an exemption, as well as if the only affordable plan that they can pick um, is a plan that covers abortion, they can also seek an exemption through that, um, which it was something we knew was in the works. Uh, but it was interesting to see this come out at the same time and go into effect right away. Did we know this was going to be retroactive? I mean, people could, in theory could go back and claim refunds for the for their 20. I mean, this year they're paying the 2017 taxes. Um, but a lot of people, have, you know, it's, it's almost middle of April. A lot of people have already paid. They could get refunds, for right? Those? I don't. I don't think we knew that it was going to be retroactive. That was a unexpected element, at least. But these exemptions, I feel like um, the the exempting people that have uh, only one plan option, that could be like, that could actually have a huge, huge impact because like one in four marketplace enrollees this year only had one option. The abortion coverage part, I think there's been a lot of reporting showing that there actually weren't that many employers that have uh, exempted, trying to, tried to get exempted from coverage of contraceptive services. I don't know if that's at the forefront of the minds of a lot of people. So I don't know if that will actually have that much of a practical impact. But I think the exempting people who have only one plan option could potentially. Yeah, I've, I've done some, some writing on this there. It's very it's sometimes it's hard to tell whether plans cover abortion or not, which is irritating to people on both sides of the debate. I was going to pick the individual mandate, the extension of that, because I think like Paige is saying that could have a huge effect. It could have an effect on insurance companies deciding whether they want to enter the market, you know, as we think forward to 2019, um, you know, that it seems like a pretty significant change and one, you know, I guess I'd been following this a little less closely, so I was less tuned into. So I was, um, like Paige was saying, I think we have 1,400 counties the last time we looked in our little tracker that have just one plan option. And that's a lot of people who could be getting an exemption. Which and, but insurers, I mean, next year they won't need yeah. an exemption because there's no mandate penalty. But right. this year, insurers went in with the assumption that there would be a penalty. And now we're telling potentially lots of people um, that that they didn't, you know, that they didn't need to or that they, you know, they still, I guess it's too late to, to buy for this year. But I would think that, that you know, the idea that they could sort of go back and, and claim uh, – claim their their penalties back would is not going to sit well with insurers. No, and I don't know if it builds a lot of goodwill going into 2019, you know, where they, I think it's going to be a struggle to get a lot of insurance companies to stick with the marketplaces with the lack of a mandate. Um, it doesn't suggest um, 
that this is something that's going to win over the insurance industry um, to keep participating in the marketplace. I thought it was interesting seeing AHIPS, uh, America's Health Insurance Plans, the Trade Association, their response to the rule because they were like, I think they see this as definitely a mixed bag for for them. Like, they really like the changes to I think things like um, well the the essential health benefits. They want more flexibility in designing their plans. They like the idea that you know the medical loss ratio could be eased and they could put more of their premiums toward overhead. Um, but at the same time, um, there were some changes in the rule that like to risk adjustment where states um, could basically uh, – I, I think reduce the risk adjustment transfers by as much as 50 percent. Um, and that's something that insurers potentially probably wouldn't be that happy about. Um, at and least that, the that's ones money that for sicker, plans that, yeah, right, that get sicker patients. Right. The plans definitely that have sicker patients um, probably wouldn't be pleased about that. Um, and then, of course, the changes to the individual mandate and the exemptions from that, they weren't happy either. So I think they they were eyeing the rule a little bit warily. So and it's interesting, too, that the um, essential, essential health benefit changes actually wouldn't be going into effect until 2020. So uh, apparently on the call, and I was not on the call with Seema Verma, the head of the, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who oversees the Affordable Care Act, um, she suggested, and we'd heard this before, and we might even have talked about it before, that there's a possibility that the administration will, will ban silver loading, which they're is looking this... At yeah, it. I think this, they're, the issue they're coming up against is some of the, the legal... Um, justification or the legal ramifications of it. But they, they have said that they're looking at that for some time. This, that could have a, a big impact, I would think. that This is where um, the, when when President Trump cut off the cost-sharing reduction payments to insurers, the, the required discounts for lower-income people, um, most states, uh, state regulators, state insurance regulators made it up by putting basically premium increases to make up for that money just on the silver plans, which made sense in a way because that's the plan. That's the only plan you can buy if you're going to get those cost sharing reductions. But it also had the impact of creating some pretty good bargains for people in the exchange and for at least lessening the blow a little bit to people outside the exchange who were paying full price. Right. That was like the one thing that sort of like softened this blow of cutting off the CSRs because it basically meant that people, more people were eligible for larger subsidies. Right. Because they'd added they'd made the silver plans that much more expensive. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think like overall this rule, when, when you're looking at kind of like what is going to be the cumulative effect on premiums, um, I mean, you can probably argue that just this rule alone, uh, some of the provisions in it could cause more like more cheaper and leaner plans to be sold. But you also have to weigh it against, um, you know, other things that we know, like from estimates by the CBO actions Congress has taken and the Trump administration has taken that will actually push premiums upward. And I don't think you can really argue that this rule probably goes will, will do enough to dampen premiums to sort of counteract the effects that we're seeing of pushing up premiums. So like, for example, repealing the individual mandate penalty, the CBO has said would increase premiums by, I think, 10 percent or so, not paying the CSRs and, you know, these reinsurance, this reinsurance proposed by um, Susan Collins could, I think CBO said, would bump up premiums by 25 percent. So, I mean, like cumulatively, I think we're still like headed for more premium increases and next year. And those will come out right before the midterm election too, which 
yeah. is, I think, an issue. We, why you're going to hear more about this? Well, that actually leads exactly to my next question. Um, our podcast colleague uh, Margot Sanger Katz this week wrote a piece in the New York Times with the theme that these rules, plus the other administrative changes that are being pushed by the administration, allowing more short-term plans and association health plans, could end up with the ACA looking a lot like the bill that failed to pass Congress last year. <laughs> do, do you guys all uh, agree with that? I think you know the idea is that. The, as Paige, you were just saying, there'll be plans that offer fewer benefits that might be more expensive. That was exactly what CBO was predicting last year with some of the, the bills that didn't get through Congress. Yeah. Well, I guess I would just say real quickly, like, I think um, I guess I still wonder how many people are going to enroll these in these types of plans, these short term plans and the association plans. And I think that still is yet to be seen. So I don't know if like the, these changes will have an effect, but definitely not as broadly as like the Republican, you know, health care bills would have also the Republican health care bills, notably, of course, would have scaled back the subsidies that people could get and Medicaid. So those would have had a huge impact. So And those things aren't in either of these because right, they yeah. would actually need legislation to do that. Right. And I think you'll see a lot of variation depending on where people live. So I think that, you know, the idea that it'll look like the bills being proposed Last year, that might be more true in somewhere like Iowa, for example, that is aggressively implementing the spirit of deregulating Obamacare, offering these leaner, cheaper plans that could drive up premiums in the marketplace versus, you know, somewhere like California or here in Washington, D.C., that's trying to do work to codify parts of the ACA into law or Maryland with, you know, their work on Reinsurance. So I think the answer to that question will depend a lot on on where people live and like what political leanings their government has around the Affordable Care Act. And of course, all that could change this year since we have midterm elections and exactly. lots of governorships. Right. So, all right, well, let's move on to the next topic. Um, on Tuesday night, the Trump administration issued what appeared to be a somewhat of a surprise executive order urging several federal departments to impose work requirements on a broad array of safety net programs. We've talked a lot about work requirements for Medicaid uh, and how Medicaid recipients, most Medicaid recipients already work or are themselves unable to work or caring for a family member. What further impact would it have to extend work requirements to programs like food stamps and public housing and basically make Medicaid work requirements the rule rather than the exception? Well, I think generally there's an expectation that when you have work requirements, you have lower enrollment on these programs. And this is something that Governor Bevin in Kentucky has said. This is not something, you know, this is something that is pushed a lot by opponents of work requirements, but I don't think it's necessarily something proponents would disagree with. And I think Margot's writing on this has been fantastic of when you implement a work requirement, what one of the things that happens is there's just more bureaucracy around the program, more forms to fill out, more things to do to show that you qualify. So I think you certainly will see some declining enrollment in these programs. And that might actually hit some people who work. I was um, really surprised by a report from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities that uh, my colleague Dylan Scott wrote about this week, looking at how people who work could potentially end up losing their Medicaid in Kentucky if they don't work a certain number of hours in a given month that could put their work um, or put their benefits at risk. So I think they, the kind of clearest outcome I could see is lower enrollment on these programs and, you know, not just in Medicaid, but wherever you put work requirements. 
I think, too, with the work requirements, if you look back at when they were applied to TANF back in the 90s, this works better when there are a lot of jobs available for people. (laughs) And so I think that's one reason, like, you saw sort of an initial success because there there was, like, a very active job market and the economy was doing great. But then when you see a recession um, and people are out of work, you're seeing – not only that effect, but then also the effect of people losing their benefits because they can't find jobs. And that's why so many states have applied for exceptions to the work requirements in TANF. And TANF is the is the new name, not that new, now it's 20 years old, of the cash welfare program. Right. So. And you already see so many Republican states or conservative states moving toward work and other conservative requirements on the program um, that this is sort of a train that's already left the station for a lot of those states. So on Capitol Hill, where they're not doing a lot of legislating, um, House Speaker Paul Ryan announced he will be retiring from Congress and the speakership at the end of this term. Um, uh, Congressman Ryan has been a crusader against the Affordable Care Act and also kind of the intellectual father in Congress of efforts to privatize Medicare. Um, He's he's been pushing premium support pretty much since he came to Congress. Um, Who's going to take over that mantle when he's gone? And what does it mean to, you know, to sort of not have the the guy with who, you know, who really knows the stuff off the top of his head hanging around to push it? Hmm, that's a really good question. Yes. Who's going to take the Paul Ryan spot? Um, I just remember like I, Paul Ryan and his work on Medicare was like just kind of start like coming out when I first started covering healthcare policy back in like 2010, 2011. And I actually remember when he rolled out the bipartisan proposal with Ron Wyden. Um, and and he, everybody freaked out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I had heard that, um, actually, I talked to a couple of his, his like, f- former staffers yesterday, and they were telling me that um, he was, he actually took advice from former Representative uh, Barney Frank and uh, when asking him how to kind of, like, f- make his way in Congress. And, and Frank apparently told him, like, just, you know, pick a few issues and decide that the, you are going to be, like, the expert in those issues. And so Ryan really took that advice to heart and decided that Medicare was going to be, like, his issue. And so, you know, I, he he just talked about it over and over. And every single budget he proposed as budget chairman contained some kind of iteration of premium support. Um, and I think he definitely you you he was asked about this in in his press conference yesterday, uh, uh, you know, about the fact that he had passed this tax overhaul that which increases the deficit and kind of how he feels about that. And his response was, well, basically, if like Congress had listened to my advice on Medicare and done something on that, then we probably wouldn't have like this big deficit. But that was, you know, politically out of reach because, as you know, as we all know, Medicare is a very popular program and Democrats were really successful in, you know, talking about how this could potentially hurt seniors and really pushed back against it. So at the end of the day, you know, there really just wasn't um, there wasn't the consensus to, to do anything on this. But I think the thought is that he does leave behind this set of policy ideas. And so if the political will ever is there, um, then it probably would be the Ryan plans that Republicans would turn to first as they kind of think about trying to pull back on Medicare spending. I also think it reflects the challenge Republicans are going to have going into the midterms because there's a lot of concern among the Republicans and Republican staffers I'm talking to about how they're going to be potentially impacted by the higher premiums and the fact that they did not repeal the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, Democrats are already pretty strongly mobilizing in terms of using health care in the elections that we've already seen with some of the special 
elections. And the absence of Ryan, who's a major fundraiser for Republicans, um, is not necessarily a good sign or boding well for Republicans on this front. Paul Ryan's healthcare legacy. No, Sarah, you're shaking your head. Oh, I think you guys have covered it pretty well. <laughs> okay, so well, we, we will move on. Um, some of the nerdy stuff that's happening this week is actually happening happening in the state, not here in Washington. Um, first up, 15 attorneys general from mostly blue states are asking to intervene in a lawsuit filed by 20 attorneys general from mostly red states. The lawsuit charges that without any more individual mandate, which we've just been discussing, the Affordable Care Act in its entirety is unconstitutional. Constitutional, because that was the justification that uh, that the chief justice, when he cast the deciding vote in the, the famous 2012 lawsuit, said that, well, you know, you can have it. It's constitutional because it's a tax. So they say no more tax, uh, no more Affordable Care Act. Um, I, I guess we've already been talking about how this is going to look different in different states. Here we are with the states now sort of pitched battle against each other. Well, and a bit of deja vu, I think, yes. for those of us who have covered. I will laugh this so is... hard if this gets to this. So again, this is one of those lawsuits when I talk to the experts I talk to who say, this seems like a long shot. The argument doesn't make sense. You know, I've talked to even some of the people who worked on the lawsuits that went to the Supreme Court who are skeptical of the argument here. You know, that being said, I think all of us have yeah, a bit of... nobody thought that second yeah, lawsuit right. exactly. was going to make so it to the Supreme Court. all of us have a little bit of shell shock from the, you know, King versus Burwell from the original mandate challenge, which I remember looking back, um, it was filed the day after the ACA passed, and there's a teeny tiny little blurb in the New York Times, kind of like a footnote, and all of a sudden that rises up and that makes the Medicaid expansion um, optional. So I think it is notable that liberal attorneys general are seeing this as enough of a threat that they are getting involved and they are getting active. They're not just writing it off as, you know, of course, this will fail in the courts. Um, So there is a lot of reason for skepticism around this argument. But, um, you know, never say never when it comes to (laughs) healthcare lawsuits. Yes, Yes, we've all spent time together on the steps of the Supreme Court. (laughs) All right. Well, the attorneys general who are challenging that uh, are led by the state of California and also in California, the state where almost all new things healthcare are born. Uh, There is some look at an all-payer rate-setting scheme. Now, right now, Maryland has all-payer rate-setting, but that's just for hospitals. This would be for the entire private health industry in California. What should we make of this, Sarah? You've been looking at it. It's pretty interesting. And, you know, I talked to the assemblymen out there who's sponsoring the bill, some of the groups that are backing it, and they decided they wanted to build something that went beyond the Affordable Care Act and didn't need approval from the Trump administration. They wanted to create a some kind of price, downward pressure on prices that they could implement right now, not waiting for someone else. And when you think of things like single payer, those require some sort of waiver from the federal government that the Trump administration is not likely to grant. So what California came up with, what was introduced this week, was a plan to set prices for all private insurance in California. Um, I think health nerds will quibble a little bit. It's not true all-payer rate setting because you are not setting the rates for Medicare or Medicaid, but Private insurance is really where you it's see it's most payer. Rates it is. It is and most it's employer plans. It's too. private. It's private it's payer rates yes. too, right? It's which employer plans. Employer plans. Yeah. 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 So Medicare and Medicaid, you would need federal waivers to set those rates differently in California. But it's um, it it, it would be a huge step if it passed. You know, I'm a little skeptical that it becomes law just because you're already seeing the California hospitals really pounce on it. You're going to see really strong opposition. But I think it's an interesting kind of idea that um, 
test out some of the ideas that are embedded in single payer, the idea of the government controlling prices by setting them without going all the way there. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it also reflects how creative states are getting now. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, the, the battle, the fight now is really all at the state level. And it's just another example of the growing divide that's happening. But also, you know, you look at Maryland, like how, in, that's how they're my thinking outside <laughs> of the box with new ways to control prices or help control premiums. When you look at Becerra, he's like... He's Man, the California he's Attorney General. Yeah, right. he's, yeah. guy. He's, he's got a whole list of healthcare <laughs> lawsuits. Like he also was leading one of the lawsuits against the against the expansion of the exemptions to the contraception mandate. Right. And then And he tried to block the um Trump from uh eliminating the cost sharing reduction. Right, right. Yes. Right. That's he's is that been still leading ongoing? the charge. Yeah. And then no, I don't think no. so. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That yeah. got thrown out. Right. Yes. Um and then oh yeah, and he was also on the um the case the Supreme Court heard last or in February, I guess, about the um the uh, travel anti-abortion clinic. Oh, different, oh, different um, one. Yeah, that's yeah, right. The, well, that's the a state, California the law. law. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's talk about Maryland briefly. Um, uh, it just concluded its legislative session without passing a replacement for the individual mandate, which was under some discussion. Sarah, you wrote about that, and we talked about that here. But lawmakers did pass a bill to create a reinsurance pool and created a commission to look at longer-term ideas to stabilize the individual market. What? struck out what struck me as interesting is that this was a bipartisan effort in an election year. Maryland is a blue state but with a Republican governor who's running for re-election and Democrats are really gunning for him. Um so what can we read into the fact that that actually everybody got together on the same page to do something on health care? I well I think it reflects sort of the concern about the individual market and trying to keep it stabilized as much as possible. Um which is even why I think you see some Republicans to some extent like Walker in Wisconsin looking at some of the more liberal ideas that you wouldn't have expected him to embrace, but now that we're getting to the midterms. Um it's really it doesn't surprise me that they are waiting on doing any kind of individual individual mandate. That's that's really politically difficult. And you'll see in other states that kind of were moving forward with this that is also taking a longer time that they want to do more study, whether it be Hawaii, Washington State. But um, the fact that they're looking at this tax, that they're going to do this tax um, and use that to help lower the premiums as well as doing a reinsurance is really a, a strong sign that they want to keep and their they're, market they're taxing healthy. insurance companies. Insurance companies, <laughs> right. And looking at reinsurance yeah. with federal, um, that they want to do what they can to help consumers and help keep that marketplace solid. Maryland is a marketplace that's that's pretty consolidated. There's mm-hmm. one one giant insurer and one slightly smaller insurer and practically nobody else. I do think it's notable they didn't get across the finish line with the individual mandate because I think they were the very first state this year, you know, and state legislative sessions are short. And I think it highlights one of the challenges liberal states have right now. They were one of the first states to say, we want to do this. We've come up with the Maryland proposal. In a way, I think, you know, some of the people I've talked to who are helping states design mandates would cite Maryland as an example of what not to do. Of they got pretty ambitious with this whole down payment system that, you know, some of the people I talk to say the thing you should do this year is literally just take the federal language and plug it into state law. Don't try and get too fancy, fancy with this. But um, I think as Stephanie points out, states are starting to run out of time. A lot of legislative sessions are ending late spring, early summer. And I, I don't know if we'll actually see a state level individual mandate come through one of the legislatures this year or not. Yeah, I think m- many I of think them so. are, are finishing or, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, just... it's, it's, uh, they're moving toward we're going to study it more, which doesn't mean it's, it's dead, but it does. it is indicative of the time constraint and 
how politically difficult it is. Well, clearly, we will have more to come on this. Um, before we turn to our extra credits, as promised at the top of the show, today we have our second Bill of the Month feature. It's based on a project KHN is doing with our partners at NPR. Each month, we're going to dissect someone's actual medical bill and see why medical care costs so much and what people might actually be able to do to lower those bills. If you have a medical bill you'd like to offer up for the project, we will post the link on the podcast page at khn.org. So here's the segment. Joining us today is NPR health policy correspondent Allison Kojak. She dug into the April bill of the month about a tale of two CT scans with very different price tags in Fort Myers, Florida. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Julie. So basically, the patient in question had a stomach ache, right? What happened here? Yeah, it basically started with a stomach ache. Um, he was a young man in Florida named Ben Hinden. He lived in Fort Myers. So he still lives in Fort Myers. And yeah, he had this persistent stomach pain, didn't know what was causing it, went to his doctor, and his doctor didn't really know what was wrong either, so he ordered a CT scan, and Ben went to what's called an imaging center. You know, this is one of those places where they only do imaging. The freestanding clinic. Yeah, MRIs, that kind of thing. Um, And he got the test, and he got a bill, and the bill was $268, so perfectly reasonable, he thought. Um, He didn't get a diagnosis, however. So a few months later, his stomach is still bothering him, and he calls the doctor again. And this time the doctor's not there, and he gets a nurse practitioner who is more concerned that maybe it's appendicitis or something serious. And she says, why don't you go to the emergency room? Because this has been going on a long time. So he goes there, and this is where it gets interesting. The triage nurse at the emergency room tells him, this is not an emergency. You don't have appendicitis, but then says... But let's run a few tests. And he didn't think, oh, I better find out what this is going to cost. And he gets another CT scan. And when that bill comes, the CT scan is priced on the bill at $8,897. Compared to the 200 and something that he paid a couple of months earlier. Exactly. And he said he did the math and it was 33 times the price of the first one. And and he had to pay the bill, yes, or some large chunk of it. He did. It was a uh, it was covered by insurance, sorta. Um, so the insurance company, you know, had a deal with the hospital. They n- had negotiated that price down to five thousand five hundred. Part of it was covered, but he still owed more than three thousand five hundred dollars for that ER visit. So and to be most clear, of it was just the CT. Yes, to be clear, this wasn't an out of network surprise bill, right? This was an in network test. Yes, no, no. This was he did everything as he was supposed to, actually, and that's the crazy part. You know, he's on the hook now. And he's young. He's about to get married. This is a big bill for him. A lot of money. Um, What accounts for such a gigantic price differential? (laughs) Getting it. I mean, they're just right up the street from each other. They are. Um, So I asked a lot of people. I went down to Florida and met Ben. And, you know, if you go around that Fort Myers, what you find is all the hospitals are owned by the same company. It's called Lee Health. And it's a nonprofit. And then there are a lot of doctor's office buildings that are also labeled Lee Health, and there's an urgent care center labeled Lee Health. And what you realize, this company dominates the healthcare industry in that city. So Ben doesn't have a lot of choices of where to go, but neither does Cigna, his insurance company. And so what you end up with is Cigna has to con- a contract with this Lee Health Corporation, which owns almost all the medical care in town. So they don't have a lot of power to negotiate prices down. They, the insurance, the insurance company. Right. And so, you know, I talked to Gerard Anderson, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins, who studies, you know, healthcare and healthcare pricing and management. And he said this is one of the problems in cities where you have a dominant health system. 
nobody has a lot of uh, ability to negotiate prices down. They can set their prices wherever the heck they want. So basically this $8,000 CAT scan, that was basically what they thought they could get away with? Kind of. I mean, they didn't tell me that. They told me it cost a lot of money to run an ER and to run a hospital. And all of that is true. And to keep it open 24 hours yeah, a day. Yeah, they have to keep yeah. it open. They have to have this CAT scan machine on the at the ready at any time. Um, but it doesn't necessarily justify 33 times the price that was just down the road. And so that's where the dominant monopoly issue comes in. And the other thing that uh, Professor Anderson tells me is these master prices, the 8897 that was the starting point for this, they're just kind of pulled out of thin air. The hospitals create these uh, uh, charge masters. And you know, they're, they're made up. They're not based on, oh, this is what it costs to run our hospital. This is how many people we have on. Da, 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 da. This is how many CT scans we expect to have this year. So we're going to charge X for each one. It's, as you said, what they think they can get. And obviously, when, when the insurance companies negotiate, they negotiate down from there, right? Exactly. And that's why it affects co- consumers. I mean, nobody... Well, very few people pay the full price, but when you start with a high price and you ask for 50% off, you end up with half a high price and instead of a low price. And that's where you, that's where this, this kind of market power can be a real problem in healthcare. So is there anything this poor patient could have done differently to avoid this? Well, you know, I don't want to get between a doctor and patient and say you shouldn't go to the emergency room, but there perhaps could have been a moment where... When the nurse at the hospital told him this is not an emergency, he could have said, well, do I really need to get this test here today? And had he known it was going to cost this much, he tells me he would have walked out the door or told them, I'm going to go get the test tomorrow um, someplace else. At the and place down the road or it was exactly. 200 bucks. He had no idea. Maybe the, the answer is to ask some questions before you go and get the test. Obviously, if you're in a true emergency, you're not going to do that kind of thing. And if your doctor tells you to go to the ER, it's a good, t- good, good idea to go. But, you know, it's time probably for people to start asking about pricing before they get tests done, because a lot of us now are on high deductible health plans. The majority of people in this country pay over $1,000 and probably more for deductibles. So you're going to be on the hook in paying a lot more of your medical bills. You, you, I mean, the idea of having high deductible health plans was that people would start paying attention to prices. Are we getting there? Well, we may be getting there. I mean, it was interesting. The one thing I did find was Cigna, when I talked to them about this issue, they show, they told me that they have on their website for customers a place where they can shop around for price. And But Ben Hinden didn't know that existed until I told him. And then we looked at it, and it turned out like the pricing for the $300 CAT scan that he got was right in the middle of all the other places nearby. But when we looked at what the price is for a CT scan at a hospital, there was no information available on that Cigna website. And I don't know why that is. But so, you know, people can be encouraged to shop around, but sometimes it's really hard to find out where you're going to be billed until you get the bill. I guess it's still a work in progress. It sure is. So we'll have more bills of the month. We will. (laughs) Allison Kojek of NPR, thank you very much. Thanks, Julie. So now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a health story they read recently. They think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss one. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. I'm going to go first this week because my extra credit is related to what we just heard. It's Sarah's story at Vox.com on children and their emergency room bills. It's called Toe Ointment, a $937 bill, and a hard truth about the American health care. It's quite the companion to Allison's bill of the month this 
month. The bottom line is sometimes you end up at the ER because you don't have any choice and you better get ready to open your wallet. Um, this story is part of Sarah's year-long look at emergency room bills. And if you have an emergency room bill you'd like to submit for her project, we will post that link on the podcast page too. So who wants to go next? Sarah, what's your extra credit? So I have a um, story from some of my colleagues at Vox, Julia Belouz, Herman Lopez, and Dylan Scott called Why Scott Gottlieb is the One Trump Official Everybody Seems to Like. And it kind of looks at a lot of the really innovative and forward-looking public health work that Scott Gottlieb has been doing at the Food and Drug Administration. I think he is the rare Trump administration official that I see a lot of former Obama administration officials praising on everything from work on tobacco, work on opioids, work on reducing salt consumption. Um, so he's kind of this interesting figure. And Trump likes him, too. And Trump likes him, too. He's this interesting figure who um, has managed to carve out a, a public health space that a lot of people on both sides of the aisle are very enthusiastic about. And they get into some of the particular policies he's pushing there. And of course, he was on the podcast a month or so ago. So, uh, Stephanie. Uh, mine is a story in Axios by Bob Herman um, looking at a drug pricing contract from a pharmacy benefit manager that he was able to track down a post um, for Express Scripts. And then once it was posted, it apparently um, was then taken down. But it is part of um, a look at this complex financing that goes on between um, pharmacy benefit managers and all the prescriptions that are filled and trying to figure out uh, what he's been looking at in terms of what, what is the dynamic and who's getting the money. Paige. Yeah, my story is actually from from Kaiser Health News by Sarah Jane Tribble, and it caught my eye this week, uh, I think as I saw uh, the, the abortion pill in the headline, and it's, you know, it's about uh, the, the drug Mifepristone, which normally is talked about in the context of the, the, the reproductive rights wars and how the, that drug can be used for an abortion. But what was interesting about this story is it actually points out that there are two different brand name drugs that use this active ingredient. And one of them is approved for... Uh, for ending for terminating pregnancies, but the other one is approved for treating this rare disease called Cushing syndrome. And there's a huge price difference between these two drugs. Um, if you if you get the one approved for abortions, it's only about eighty dollars. But if you get the if you have Cushing's and you you want to get the other version, uh, it runs about five hundred and fifty dollars before discounts. And people that have this rare syndrome have to take about three pills a, a, a day, so their cost can be about one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year. Um, so it's really interesting. It just kind of looks at like how the company um, uh, um, Corsept Therapeutics, which be began marketing this drug for Cushing syndrome, basically has hiked the price by like 150 percent and has turned this drug, this sort of alternative use for this drug into like a huge profit machine. So it's a really good story. I recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> Lots more to talk about on drug prices, too. But that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That will help other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Uh, at PW underscore Cunningham. At Steph Armour 1. At Sarah Cliff. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>